more chaotic than we're used to. So, uh, but we're excited to have all the little ones with us. Uh, parents, we want you to know we think it's great that you came. Okay, we think it's great that you, you came and you let your kids sit with you and let them see you worship. And uh, there are no expectations on you today. All right, if your kid starts having trouble because the sermon's just too boring for him or her, we get it, all right? Uh, if they need to act out, we've got the service streaming, the overflow room out there. Just get up, take them out. It's fine. Like, nobody's going to look at you like, wow, you can't control your kid. Like, we're all there, right? We all have kids. Right? In fact, uh, in fact, like, there's a ton of them right here, and it's all, like, staff and ministry directors. And they're probably the highest likely ones to act out, right? So we, we're there with you, okay? And so uh, no pressure, no judgment. Um, we're, we're just glad that you're here. And for all the families who are joining us online, and, uh, and we're grateful for your presence as well. I'd like to take this opportunity, though, to point out um, uh, Matt and Sarah Buell oversee our FBN Kids Ministry, and uh, every week in the class hour, uh, Emily and Seth uh, Wyram and Doug and Kathy Tilford help them. They've got a team of volunteers to help them. They're down there every week, and and we love your kids. That's why we have them here. That's why they invest in them, but we also love giving them a break from time to time to let them come up here, get, get some air, and join us. And so can we just thank everybody who works with our kids week in and week out? I would do that next week, but they'd be down the basement and wouldn't even hear it, all right? So I'm glad they were there to hear, hear with us this morning to hear that. Grab your Bibles and get to 1 Timothy chapter 6. All right, we've been in Timothy for a while now, um, since pretty much all of 2021, and uh, we want you to get there because we're coming towards the end of this letter. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black one to see back in front of you. We're going to be on page 1053 of that. Uh, we want you to be able to follow along with us. And before uh, I, I open this with prayer, before I get in the sermon, I want to I just add one extra invite uh, to all of you for Wednesday night. Okay, so Wednesday night is our annual meeting. If you're a member, uh, I would really, really want you to be here and really, really hope that you want to be here. Uh, if you're not a member, though, and still want to come uh, hear uh, some things, it's going to be a pretty huge night. Uh, we're going uh, to uh, approve, hopefully approve the budget for the next year. Uh, we are going to uh, have elder elections. Um, so that's an, that's an incredibly crucial role here. Uh, we're going to talk through uh, everything that's going to change around here in 2022. It's going to be uh, one of the biggest years of change that we've ever seen around here, um, especially just to, uh, when it comes to our physical location. And we're going to lean into a lot of, like, it's going to take a lot of flexibility on our behalf. It's going to take a lot of us kind of rolling the punches uh, like we're doing this morning. And so we're going to talk a lot about that. Um, we're gonna, and there's a lot of things that we're trusting in God, believing in God for the next year. And we can't wait to unpack them for you and tell you about them and celebrate them with you. And so it, it will not be a waste of your time. That's what I can promise you. Um, and so come Wednesday night at 6.30 and uh, we, join us as we celebrate just the tremendous faithfulness of the Lord to this ministry over the past year and then look forward to some really exciting things in store. Um, so that's my pitch. Hope you can be here and um, I'm going to ask you to join me now in a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful for each and every person uh, who's here in this room right now and each and every person who's joined us online. And as we uh, lean into your words, we continue the study in Timothy, we pray that you would be the one who sort of just takes over this room, God, that you would be the one who speaks and convicts and encourages, that you'd be the one that gets the glory from all this. And we pray this all in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Well, there are a couple years uh, in college that I, in order to, to, to make sure I had the finances to get through college, I worked as a bank teller. Um, and it, it was uh, among the most boring jobs that I've ever had. And it was by design, right? Because bank tellers, they, they don't want you to ad-lib things. They don't want you to have any freedom or creativity. They want you to be able to just be robotic and do the exact same things over and over and over again. And this was a bank in, in a small town, uh, Cloverdale, Indiana. 
And so it's like the customers bought into this because uh, the customers in a small town, they all come in the same day every single week at the same time every single week. And so like, you talk about no variety whatsoever in this job, except one day that stands out above all the rest. It was a Monday, which is always our busiest day because the businesses are coming in after a weekend when the bank wasn't open. And so it's the day you count more money than the other day. You do more deposits than the other day. And uh, there was a business at my station, and I was counting through a pretty large deposit for them. And I got to this section of bills, and I just stopped. Because I've been counting money all morning, and, and this bill in my hand just felt, there's something a little off about it. So I set it aside and kept counting, and I got to another one. I was like, man. Something's just not right here. And so I kept counting, and I found five or six different ones in this deposit. And so uh, once I got it all tied, I, I pulled those back over, and I started looking, and they felt smoother than every other bill that I was counting that day. So I held them up to another bill, and, and the color was incredibly close, but it was just a little bit. The color didn't quite match. And then I matched up the borders, and, and it was just like a fraction of an inch off, not quite the same size. And so I notified uh, our head teller what I, what I was discovering, Next thing I know, I'm being ushered into the president's, the bank president's office. I'm showing him these bills. Then Cloverdale police show up, and they're interviewing me what I found. And in and, and, and two weeks, two weeks later, we found, I saw in the, the local paper that a counterfeit ring had been busted in Cloverdale. And I've been terrified to tell that story ever since, because as you all know, snitches get stitches, right? And I didn't want, I didn't want that coming back on me, but I feel like it's, that was like 15 years ago now, so I think I'm safe, but don't you dare tell anybody that story, okay? I mentioned it this morning, in this safe environment, thankfully there's no live stream, right? Uh, in this safe environment, because there's this modern contemporary view and version of Jesus that's being presented out there. He's presented as this honorable and loving, but also what I would call a passive Jesus. Right? He's somebody that we should all admire and strive to be like. And the reason why is just because he loved everybody. Right? And love is love. And love is acceptance. And love is encouragement. And why can't we all just be more like Jesus? Right? And what this view does is it takes parts of Jesus that are absolutely true. There's no one that we should try to emulate more than him. There's no one more loving and gracious than him. But it, it ultimately isn't the real deal. And I was thinking about why those businesses in Cloverdale were so willing to take that counterfeit money. It's because, it's because it was so close to the real thing, and they had a, a preconceived bias. They wanted it to be real, right? They had a reason to want to, to get paid that money. And this is what we do with the counterfeit Jesus. It's close to the real thing, and we have reasons to want him to tell us, you're good, and I accept all your decisions at all times. But it's not the real deal. And it also doesn't answer an incredibly important question that no one seems to be asking. If Jesus was this long-haired, blue-eyed hippie who loved petting baby lambs and just told everyone to love each other, then why did they kill him? And why were they so happy to kill him? And why did the leaders today orchestrate his killing and celebrate it as one of their greatest accomplishments? Because there's no threat in hippie Jesus. And so that can't be the whole picture. And the problem isn't just that we have a wrong view of Jesus, it's, it's in it then integrates, and we think if Jesus was passive, then we think the expression of the Christian faith should be passive as well. And that's simply not true at all. Ours is not a passive faith. And if we express our faith in passive ways, then we are passing the vast majority of what God has commanded us to do. And so I'm excited to go uh, over 1 Timothy 6 with you today, because in this passage, we're going to read some language that Paul writes to Timothy that I hope will lay to rest fully this passive faith nonsense for good. And so I'm going to invite Paul Lacey up to read today's passage. He's going to read for us 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 12 through 14. And if you are physically capable, would you please stand with him for the reading of God's word? 
Morning, Paul. Good morning. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who, while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Paul. You guys can have a seat. Keep your Bibles open right there to 1 Timothy 6. That's where we're going to be. If, if, as you know, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6 is, is a chapter we've been in for a while. At the start of it, uh, Paul addresses uh, the false teachers and the, and the idols that they have and the ruin that that caused. And, and last week, we started verse 11, where the shift focuses to Timothy, right? That, that all these bad stories, Timothy, are not to be you. Right? You're a man of God by the grace of God, and so here's what you're to do. And so the last couple of weeks in here, we have asked the Lord to identify uh, the idols that still exist in our lives. And last week, we challenged you to, to start starving them and killing them off in your life. Right? And so hopefully that language alone shows you that, that this isn't a passive deal. Right? Fleeing from idolatry, running after Jesus and his word and his spirit, starving your idols. These are, this is sacrificial, aggressive, non-passive language. And there's more of the same here in verse 12. And so I want to pull out some truths for you. And the first one is simply this, that there's a good kind of fight. In in the passive view of Jesus, in the passive view of Christianity, there's no need for fight, and there's no need for conflict, and there's no need to work anybody up. But that doesn't match what we find in the Bible. If you you look back at chapter 1 of this very letter, Paul tells Timothy in verse 18 that I'm writing this letter so that you can, and here's the phrase he used, so you can fight the good fight. Now we get to the end of the letter, chapter 6, verse 12, and he tells him flatly, Timothy, fight it. Fight the good fight. We find this in, in Jude where he writes, Dear friends, although I was eager to write you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once and for all. I want you to know that word contend means to fight for. So Jude is telling his audience, I found it necessary to write to you, and here's why, so that you could fight for the faith. And there are other examples throughout the New Testament. Because the, the thing that the passive view of Christianity forgets is that there's another kingdom at war with the kingdom of God. We're going to celebrate Christmas soon. Can you believe that? Like it's already, tomorrow is November, uh, and then we're going to be at Christmas before you know it. But I want you to notice that when we get to Christmas time, that as soon as Jesus arrived, he was under attack. I don't know all of your origin stories, your birth stories, right? But does anybody else's story in here begin with a psychotic king ordering the slaughter of an entire town's babies just to ensure that you were killed? Because that's how Jesus' story begins. And it didn't stop. Everywhere he went, right, everything he did, though he was literally sinless and his motivations were always pure, he faced opposition and ridicule and attack. And like we already mentioned, when he died on the cross, there's a whole group of leaders who thought they orchestrated that and they were celebrating it when it happened. And this hasn't stopped since. Right, this week, Bill's next Sunday is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. Right? The persecution and killing of the followers of Jesus has not lessened at all. In fact, it's intensified. There were more followers of Jesus killed for being Christians in the 20th centuries than in the previous 19 combined. Right? Even in places of religious freedom, where we, one of such examples where we find ourselves and we should be thankful for, right, there is the progressive, tolerant movement that's gaining stream where you can believe in anything and be celebrated except for believing in Jesus. Or you can adopt any worldview and to be told that it's valid and you're great for holding it except the biblical worldview. And this is not new. Right? This letter was written almost 2,000 years ago, and Timothy was in a battle for truth. 
He was in a battle to preserve the good and right gospel in the church. He was in a battle for souls. And Jesus wasn't afraid to talk about this. Listen to this in Matthew 10. He says, therefore, everyone who acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. Don't assume that I came to bring peace on the earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. Not about you, but it sounds clearly like he's drawing lines right there. Either you're with him and you're acknowledging him and he'll come be with you, or you're not. There's a really clear line. This passive view of this loving Jesus that is, is, that is accepting of everyone and everything and all decisions that you make doesn't really vibe with the real Jesus, does it? Because you need to understand, Jesus does not love you in a way that accepts and validates all your decisions and all your feelings and all your desires. Because that's not real love. In fact, he loves you in a way that despises and fights against and dispels anything in your life that would do damage to you or hurt your soul. And he's willing to sacrifice himself to rid your life of it. And in that selfless love, he cannot tell you that you're right all the time. In that selfless love, he cannot tell you that you're the answer to the solution. In that selfless love, he cannot tell you that everything you want and everything you desire is valid because it isn't. And nobody knows that more than him. And he's been fighting for you, and he's been fighting for your soul longer than you realize. There's this amazing transfer that happens when you come to faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, your sins are forgiven. Yes, his righteousness is now given to us. Yes, we've given the, the promise of eternal life and adopted into his family. But we also change sides in what has been an epic battle for a really long time. Here's how Colossians 1 puts it, that God, he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us. I want to focus in on that word. He's transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. Now, if you've listened to me for any time, you might have heard me mention maybe once, maybe twice in the last 10 years uh, that, I, that I follow and I'm a fan of the Chicago Cubs. I don't really talk about it much, right? But the Chicago Cubs made a series of, of trades this past summer. And in, in these trades, in, in a swoop of like 24, 48 hours, they sent among the greatest players in franchise history to go play for other teams. And did they get good players back? No, they did not. Did they get decent players back? No, they did not. Did they get back anything? No, what they got back was all this was to save their owner, who's already a billionaire, more money. And so by all accounts, this is terrible trades. And if you're asking, if you're checking on me, no, I'm not okay, all right? I'm not okay. I haven't been since July 30th. I feel like a man without a team anymore, but that's my own issues. We'll get through that, right? But a trade is this, right? A trade is where you're playing for one team one day, and then all of a sudden the next team day you're playing for another one. It's the same concept here in Colossians 1, right? We belonged to the kingdom of darkness. Do you realize how bleak that is? Ephesians 2 says that in that, we lived according to the ruler of that kingdom. And in that, we carried out all our fleshly desires. We're subject to the whims of the world, and we had a king that is absolutely not for us. He's a desperate ruler, knowing that he's already lost and wanting to take as many down with him as he can. And in this kingdom, according to the Bible, we, we exist as already spiritually dead, and the wrath of God is stored up for us, waiting to be unleashed on us in all eternity in hell. And by the way, anyone outside the grace and forgiveness of Jesus, that is our state. That we are sinners who have rejected God's good design, we've chosen to follow our flesh and the ways of this world, and by association, we are enemies of God, and this will be to our ruin which is why Jesus just can't accept everything that we do and support it. Because it's leading to your eternal ruin and destruction. What he did and said was to pursue us, 
to take on our form, to live the sinless life that we could not live. He went to the cross to pay the price for our sins and rebellion, and he defeated death to offer us forgiveness and eternal life. The Bible says now that if we have faith in Jesus, we simply believe in him and trust in his death to forgive our sins, our sins are forgiven in full. And we go from being an enemy of God to being an adopted child of God forever. And we get to live forever with him in heaven. And Colossians 1 tells us that we are transferred, we are traded from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God. It's an amazing trade. But there's also something that comes with that. Being transferred in this kingdom now means that you are bestowed the honor of being a soldier for the Lord. And it also means that there are things worth fighting for. I want you all to take note of the language in verse 12. Paul does not say, Timothy, get out there and fight anyone and anything. He doesn't say fight a bunch of fights, does he? What does he say? He says fight the good fight. You know, sometimes well-meaning Christians, they get dragged down into lesser battles. We want to fight culture wars. We want to fight political wars. We want to win social media debates. We want to focus on just changing everyone's behavior. Well, listen, behavior modification and culture wars attack the symptom. They don't attack the disease. And so we must fight the good fight with the good weapons that, he, that we have been given. The only hope for this world, the only hope for each of us individually is Jesus Christ and the power of his gospel to save and free sinners first and then use his spirit and his word and his church to transform our lives secondly. And so we're told to fight the good fight. And the good fight, so just so you know, as revealed in the New Testament, appears to be twofold. It's these two things. Number one, that we contend for the purity of truth within the church. And number two, we proclaim the gospel to those outside the church no matter what the cost. That is fighting the good fight. And there's a repeated prayer that I've taken to the Lord on behalf of my daughters. I prayed over them every single night when I put them to bed. Where I asked God to use them mightily for his kingdom and raise them up to be ferocious warriors for him. And what I'm praying when I pray that is twofold. Number one, that they will contend for truth in their own lives and hearts and for any that God will give them influence over. And number two, that they would be a light for Jesus and a spreader of his gospel wherever he places them. And absolutely guaranteed there will be opposition to this. But even this is not to be feared. Because the second thing Paul reminds Timothy here is that we have nothing to lose. What's the greatest fear in any military battle? The greatest fear is that you might lose your life. The Bible addresses this too. Matthew 10, verse 39. Anyone, Jesus says, anyone who finds his life will lose it. And anyone who loses his life from, because of me will what? Will find it. Look at verse 12 again. Paul starts by saying, Timothy, fight the good fight of the faith. And then here's the phrase. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you have made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. That phrase right there, take hold of eternal life. You know what that's not saying? It's not saying, Timothy, get out there and earn your salvation. Right? Take hold of eternal life does mean this. Take hold of that which has already been given to you in Jesus, Timothy. And secondly, make sure you never fight from a position of defeat or weakness. I've always had a kind of a love-hate relationship with the game of dodgeball, especially growing up in school, because it's really fun. It's one of the most fun games ever, like, ever invented, I believe. It's thrilling. It's exciting. But I'm old enough, just old enough, that we didn't use these new dodgeballs. Have you seen these new dodgeballs? That I could pelt Brandon on the front row right now, and it wouldn't even hurt him. Right? When, in, in PE, growing up, we used kickballs and volleyballs and soccer balls, and they would leave giant bruises and war, and like just, I mean, it would, it's like a hugely dangerous game, right? And I remember multiple times where in the Clover P, you'd split up two teams and start playing where you would be the last one standing. 
So all your teammates are over here. They've all been knocked out. You're out there, and there's about seven, eight people on the other team, and they're all firing dodgeballs at you, right? And, it, and you're like, do I try to catch one? Because if I drop it, then we lose. Do I try to hit them all? But no matter where you're looking, there's a dodgeball flying at you. And can I be honest with you? I still feel that a lot. Like, I still see that when I close my eyes and try to go to sleep, and I should talk to a psychiatrist about that, right? But I still feel that in life. Because even in simplifying the good fight, right, that God wants me to contend for truth in my life and in those I have influence over and share the gospel, I have to fight my own sin in that. I have to fight my own personal preferences in that. I have to fight my own desire to be deceived. There are challenges and limitations and oppositions to pushing the the, the church to this. I have fears for my daughters in the world that they are exposed to constantly. I never know if I'm reserving enough time to invest in my family. I feel the weight of of expectations that others have on me, and I feel like 95% of the news and questions and scenarios brought to me are incredibly complicated and challenging, and none of them have easy answers. And so often it feels like you're the last one staying in a dodgeball game, and there are multiple things coming at you. And no, there's no doubt in my mind, knowing the, the post he was in, that Timothy probably felt this daily. And yet, what does Paul tell him? He says, take hold of eternal life. Take hold of eternal life, Timothy, because feelings aren't facts. Because feelings are quite capable of being completely devoid of truth. Taking hold of eternal life is taking hold of the truths and promises of God's word that we know to be true, whether they feel like it or not. It's remembering what we already know. That's why Timothy was to take hold of that which he, as Paul mentions, already made a good confession of, both in his baptism and in his teachings. This is nothing new for Timothy, but he was supposed to take hold of that which he already knew. These truths in God's word, Romans 1, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for any who believe. Philippians 1, that he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8, that there is therefore now no condemnation for any of you in Christ Jesus. <coughs> Excuse me. And nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And in Matthew 16, where Jesus makes this incredible claim. I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Do you know what the Bible tells us is true, whether, it feel, whether we feel like it or not? What's true is that no matter how many arrows the enemy shoots, no matter how great our adversaries, no matter how helpless we feel or how hopeless the situation seems, soldiers in the armies of the Lord are never to fight from a position of defeat. We're to always attack from a position of victory because the God factor cannot be denied, because nothing is impossible for him, because the gospel of Jesus cannot be stopped, and the gates of hell cannot and will not ever overpower his church. And we need to recall that, we need to remind ourselves of that, we need to remember these truths from time to time so that we will take hold of what Jesus has already bought for us and what he's already won. And thirdly, we all need push to stay in the fight. You know why the passive view of, Christian, of the Christian faith is appealing? Because it asks us for nothing. We just sit down and we receive God's grace and eternal life and nothing is called out of us outside of that. But listen to me, it might sound easy, but being outside the will of God is never what is best. It's why accountability and authority are good for us. We see that in Timothy. Paul, throughout this letter, multiple times keeps charging Timothy. You notice that language? He says, I charge you, Timothy. Here's how to read this. It's not a suggestion. He's not giving him an option. It's a command. And of all the charges in this letter, this one 
that we read today, that Paul read for you, it's the heaviest. He says in verse 13, in the presence of God. So he's calling God as a witness, right? The creator of all things to give this weight. And in the presence of Jesus, right? Who, and then he reminds Timothy, the same Jesus who, while facing Pilate, did not choose self-preservation, but willingly sacrificed himself for the kingdom of God. So in the presence of those two, right? Verse 14, I charge you to keep this command, to keep fighting the good fight, to keep contending for truth, to keep sharing the gospel, to go to war on behalf of those God has given you and keep taking ground from the kingdom of darkness and taking ground for the kingdom of God. And how long should Timothy do this? Verse 14, until Jesus returns, or you can add in parentheses, or until Timothy dies. There is no retiring from this. There is no walking away from this. There is no, I'm, I've done enough, it's time to let the younger generation do it. I was talking to a longtime member from FBN last week, and she said to me, you know, I just can't do as much as I used to be able to. And then she got this little sparkle in her eye, and she said, and she pointed at me, she says, but there are things that I can still do. And it was an inspiring conversation. You know why? Because she was staying in the fight. How helpful for Timothy that he had a voice like Paul's in his life. This is why soldiers are under authority. This is why God gives his children authority figures in every circle of life. It's why accountability and discipleship relationships are so needed. Because we need push to stay in this fight. Now, if this was the heaviest charge given Timothy in this entire book, hopefully it lands heavy on us as well. And we should want to respond in ways that please the Lord. And so I want to bring this to a close by laying those in front of you. And the first is simply this. It's the same charge that was given Timothy. Just get in the fight. Now, the only thing that you can control is you. The only thing this church can control is FBN, okay? And so here, here at this place, we need every follower of Jesus to get in the good fight. And so there are two questions that I want you to ask yourself this morning and, and, and take them before the Lord as well. And the first one is this. How am I contending for truth in my life and for those that God has given me? Because what you have right now, what so many of you have sitting in your laps this morning is God's word. It's the timeless, eternal, authoritative truth of God's word. It is the lamp for our feet. It's the light to our path. It, it cuts sharper than a two-edged sword. It is inspired by God and useful for teaching and correcting and rebuking and training. And people come and people go and cultures come and cultures go. But the word of the Lord endures forever. <coughs> Which, by the way, is exactly why the battle always starts right there. It always starts there first. In Genesis chapter 3, we're told of the fall, where, where sin entered creation for the first time. And we're all feeling the disastrous ramifications of that to this day. But I want to put this verse on the screen for you so you can know this morning how the very first temptation came, what packaging it had. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, the serpent says to the woman, and here's the phrase, did God really say? Did God really say? You can't eat from any tree in the garden? First of all, it's not what he said, if you read Genesis. But, I, but I'm not even getting to that. I want you to see how the first human beings were tempted to sin. The first temptation was this. It was to question the veracity of God's word. It was not to question God. It was not to question his character. All that would come later after you question his word. The first step is to question what he has revealed as truth. And nothing about that strategy has changed. That's where it always begins. And so we must fight first for our own heart and mind to keep a lookout for how we are susceptible and to ensure that our worldview, our wisdom, our life decisions are, are being shaped by God's word more than anything else. And anything that is influencing us more than that needs to be blocked out, needs to be starved, needs to be killed. 
And then secondly, it is our privilege to fight for those that God has given us. Friends who trust our input, siblings who go to us with questions, most clearly, right, parents who have children, our ministry leaders who have people under your influence. You need to get into the fight for their souls and their minds. You must contend for the truth in their lives. And so you pray against the ways and means and influence of the enemy. You stay engaged in their lives so that your voice continues to carry weight. You don't exasperate, you don't bully, you don't overrun your kids and and risk losing your voice in their life. But instead, you check on their heart and you fight for their affections and you show them how much you're for them while still being the adult. And guess what? You cannot do this passively. You can't. Because to do it passively would be to allow them unfiltered access on smartphones and the internet, to not filter the apps they can use or be active on, to not have conversations with them about what they're being exposed to, to not have family devotions, to not let them ask you hard questions, to not actively push them to a biblical worldview. Is to do all that is to trust this world and this disciple and this society to disciple them in truth, which will never ever happen. If you adopt a passive view of this, you will fail 100% of the time. If the Lord has trusted you with the influence of others, be it one, two, three, five, 20, 30, 50, hundreds or more, he has entrusted you with the role of shepherd and a shepherd gets in the fight for his or her sheep. So how are you doing this? How are you contending for truth in your life in the life of those he's given you? The second question is this. How am I trying to take ground for the kingdom of God? Do you have an answer for that? Are you actively praying for non-believers in your life? <laughs> are you starting or having conversations about matters of eternity? Are you at the very least inviting them to join you at church? Or do, you, do you speak of the goodness of God to others? Are you sponsoring any children through a gospel ministry? Are you supporting any missionaries who are on the front lines taking ground for a king? Have you maybe felt a tugging from the Lord that he might be calling you to go, that he might be sending you, and have you tried to ignore it or embrace it? Where is it? Where is it that you're actively fighting for the spreading of the gospel? And if you answer that question honestly this morning, it has the potential of being a very humbling and very sobering question. But the good news is you're still here. God has given you another day of life, and it's never too late to get in the fight. Second encouragement is this, just to embrace your position of victory. Fighting the good fight always brings with it costs, every time. It might be things you have to give up, It might be experiences that you value that you can't have anymore. It might be people you have to say goodbye to. It might be financial sacrifices. It might be comforts and sacrifices given up. There will always be opposition because there is no war without opposition. There will always be times when it feels like defeat and hopelessness reign, but none of that is true. God the Father is always at work to this very day, and Jesus is joining him. And with his spirit enabling us, with Jesus interceding for us, and with God going before us, we are joining a battle that we cannot lose. And so listen to me. Fear and reason and risk avoidance and comfort are not virtues in the kingdom of God because that's the vocabulary of somebody who can be beaten. Faith, endurance, perseverance, and victory are ours in Jesus. So why don't we start fighting like it? And thirdly, lastly, do not block out our quiet, needed voices in your life. You know, God gives us authorities in every area of our lives. He gives us voices who tell us what we need to hear, not always what we want to hear. And none of those voices are perfect, but they're gifts from God. 
And if you've got somebody in your life who loves you enough to challenge you like Paul did Timothy, who loves you enough to invest in you and sacrifice themselves for you, and who won't just tell you that you're right all the time, do everything you can to keep that voice in your life. Do not let petty selfishness, do not let disagreement or something minor come between you and them. And take note of the fact that when you're actively trying to avoid them or block them out, you probably already know what you're doing is wrong. And if you've got a voice in your life like that, find them today. Be sure to thank them and encourage them today because I guarantee you it has not been easy for them. We are at war. And it's time we start acting like it. Because war has never, ever been won by the most passive side. Jesus Christ has saved us. He has redeemed us. He has transferred us into his kingdom. And so may we live our lives in response by fighting the good fight, by contending for the truth, and by taking ground for his kingdom, by sharing his hope and his gospel. May FBN be a place that's always about this. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the voice that Paul had in Timothy's life, a voice that could challenge him, a voice that could push him, a voice that could, could really speak into areas where Timothy might have been prone to passiveness, to prone uh, to defeatist attitude, prone to just, to just pull back and not lean into the fight, not fight the good fight, to not take hold of the eternal life which you've made possible for him. And yet here is this voice charging him in, in, the, in view of the presence of God and of Jesus, charging him to stay at it as long as God gives him breath. God, your word and your spirit serve those same roles for us. And so I pray that we as a church would feel the weight of that charge this morning, would feel the weight of that challenge, that we would hear from you today, God, of your encouragement to get in the fight, or that, that we would contend for truth first in our heart and mind and life, and then for those that God has given us. And then that we would be active participants in the spreading, multiplying, and the sharing of the good news of Jesus. God, this is what you've called us to. This is what you've saved us for. This is why you've put us on this earth, and may you, may you find us faithful and obedient to such a command. And we pray this all in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Stand. Let's stand and sing one last time together. Mm-hmm.